Hello and welcome to the Stock Podcast. I'm Nate Abercrombie, the host of the only investing podcast that gives everyone the chance to hear public company CEOs and CFOs describe their business and provide the investment case for their company. In this episode, the Stock Podcast is really excited to bring you an interview with Kirk Andrews, CFO. Just to recap where we left off, after NRG emerged from bankruptcy, NRG made a few acquisitions, and as Kirk puts it, We're putting the band back together. Forget it. No way. We're on a mission from God. We're putting the band back together. I said no. Absolutely not. <laughs> you! How much for your wife? <laughs> In addition to putting the band back together, NRG was growing its portfolio of renewable energy assets. Now I'd like to note that I've had a knack for joining industries right at the peak or soon after the peak of the heyday. I joined the wind industry in 2009, which was right about the time growth in the industry started to slow. But the excitement around renewables continued for quite a few years after, and there's still a lot of excitement today, especially for solar. However, the chinks in the armor of renewables presented themselves back in 2015, around the same time that the Sun Edison meltdown occurred, which if you recall from the interview with Mike Garland from Pattern Energy, had implications across the sector, at least with respect to sentiment for the industry. During the Mike Garland interview, we also talked about the uncertainty for federal incentives and the relatively high levels of leverage in the renewable sector. Outside of pure play renewable energy companies, I don't think the issue of leverage was ever more acute than with NRG. At the beginning of 2015, NRG had total debt of nearly $21 billion, and the company only had a market cap of roughly $8 billion. Depending upon how you looked at it, leverage was around seven times. That is, total debt to adjusted EBITDA. Given some of the misperceptions around NRG's commodity exposure that we talked about previously, and with a consolidated leverage multiple as high as it was, there was a lot of concern around debt levels and leverage. And Kirk describes this as the Bloomberg terminal problem when you look at the different metrics that define a company. Leverage for NRG looked extremely high, but NRG had a very complicated structure. It had subsidiaries with debt that had no recourse to NRG. NRG Yield, which is a business that contains a portfolio, a large portfolio of a lot of assets that have long-term contracts. And because of the long duration of the contracts, you could put a lot of debt on those assets. But because NRG had controlling stakes in all of these different businesses, consolidated debt looked really high. But let's just be clear about something. All of the independent power producers operated with leverage levels that were elevated relative to other sectors. But given all of the commodity price volatility and a lack of investor interest to learn more about how power markets work, your average or typical investor would look at the Bloomberg screen and look at the metrics and say, this thing is levered to the gills and I just don't want to touch it. The situation was accentuated by the fact that electricity prices in deregulated markets had plummeted. This was mainly because natural gas prices had dropped to less than $2 in MMBTU. A lot of power supply was still in the market and also because the renewable energy sector had grown so much. And if you recall, renewable energy will continue producing power even when the price for power goes negative. Around this time, investors started bailing out of NRG shares. 
In January of 2015, NRG's share price was about $30, but it bottomed almost 12 months later at $9 a share. Any risk-averse investor who didn't understand NRG's business model or the integrated power model, which again is retail with generation, wouldn't touch NRG's stock with a 10-foot pole. In December of 2015, the previous NRG CEO, David Crane, stepped down and the chief operating officer, Mauricio Gutierrez, was promoted to CEO. The investing community viewed Mauricio as an operations guy, and Kirk had always been viewed as more than capable as CFO. So you might guess there was quite a bit of optimism for the new leadership team at NRG. And that new leadership team was determined to right the ship, as it were. Both guys were laser-focused on reducing both debt and costs. NRG had already made significant progress when activist investor Elliott Management stepped in. But together, NRG Energy, Elliott, and the Texas power legend John Wilder drafted a transformation plan for the company. I'll attempt to summarize what NRG did and plans to do, but check out the IWTB blog post on NRG to learn more. The transformation plan would reduce total NRG debt from about $20 billion to $7 billion. The transformation plan also incorporated an asset sale process that would result in $2.5 to $4 billion of cash proceeds, as well as cost-cutting and margin enhancements of more than $1 billion. The idea was to simplify the business because for quite some time, NRG was viewed as just way too complicated. By 2020, NRG should look a lot similar to the NRG that emerged from bankruptcy back in the mid-2000s, with one exception, a really big and really profitable retail business. Sure, there would continue to be some commodity exposure, but the retail business provides NRG with a natural hedge. Management has thus far done a really good job of delivering on what they said they would do. The total asset sale figure was in the middle of the fairway at roughly $3.2 billion, and cost-cutting measures are on track. Wall Street estimates have NRG generating about $1.2 billion of free cash flow per year through 2021, which means free cash flow yield, or the amount of cash per share divided by the share price, is just about 10%, and that's before one factors in any share buybacks. This brings us to one of the most interesting aspects of the NRG investment thesis, and also another reason why it's such a treat to have Kirk on the program. By the end of 2020, and assuming NRG doesn't do anything with its excess cash flow, cash on the balance sheet could represent between 50 to 70% of NRG's total market capitalization. Between now and then, NRG could make some acquisitions, buy back stock, or it could substantially increase the dividend. The company recently announced a $1 billion share repurchase program. Based on today's share price, that represents about 10% of the company's stock. The general consensus is that the company will buy back a substantial amount of its shares over the next few years. But a lot depends on where the share price goes from here. I'll be honest, I, I really like how he frames up how he thinks about his role as NRG fiduciary and the financial responsibilities that entails. He talks about capital allocation like a business owner. And my only fear in airing part two of this interview is that Warren Buffett hears it and swoops in and takes Kirk away from NRG. But that's also just my perspective as a shareholder, which again, full disclosure, I do own NRG shares. So without further ado, let's get back to the interview with NRG Energy's CFO, Kirk Andrews. You mentioned the 
social motivations as well as the economic motivations for doing what you know NRG did. Obviously, you had a, a different CEO at the time, but a, at a certain point, the market was overreacting to some of the volatility in commodity prices and the market wasn't rewarding NRG for the shareholder return story, wasn't rewarding NRG for a lot of the different efforts that you were making to sort of simplify the business. And then there was a change in management and then there was a new emphasis, which was reduce cost, improve margins, reduce debt. Could you talk about kind of that catalyst? And then if you would like to talk about the activist investor. Sure. What what you're referring to is, first of all, with that pretty significant success we had from an order of magnitude standpoint, largely around those large renewable projects that I referred to before. Those types of projects, because of their different return profile, they aren't exposed to the fluctuations in commodity prices. They they have a different valuation multiple associated with them for good reason. They were good value and they still are. But the multiple that they command that, that is perfectly justified from a value standpoint is higher than the way the typical investor in a commodity exposed company like a traditional independent power producer like NRG still was and is at its core commands. And what happens when that takes place is, you know, markets tend to apply more or less a one size fits all value to the whole company. So if I've got a certain part of the business that should be valued at a 10 or 11 or a 12 multiple, but the average investor understandably thinks about me as being an industry that's a seven, eight times multiple, then if my co- my whole company is given a seven to eight times multiple, I'm not realizing the value for that big piece of the company. And, and that big piece of the company was the renewables business. We took an interim step to try to remediate that by taking that part of the business public through a company called NRG Yield. That helped, but didn't solve the issue because we also had the headwind you referred to before, which is lower commodity prices on the rest of the business placing greater pressure on the company. So after the CEO change in 2015, the new CEO and I saw a like about picking some of the low-hanging fruit, addressing some of those issues, got out in 2016, beginning to reduce our costs, beginning to simplify our balance sheet, I say simplify because I've even through that period of time, I, I think we managed the balance sheet very well, but we did take advantage as I do what I call leave no doubt to do some additional delevering to improve our balance sheet ratios so our investors had greater confidence. And we did that over the course of the first year after the change in the CEO. And I would say we were kind of in the middle innings of that game focusing on streamlining the cost, doing away with some of the cost structure that was designed to go after a lot of different initiatives and different businesses that were addressing where the power power markets were going and focusing more on the core business. And in the throes of that, as you refer to, is, as is often the case for a company that's going through an evolutional change and has pressure on its stock price and some, some things that aren't resonating in the stock price like the renewables business I spoke about before, you know, it was around that time that, that we found ourselves like a lot of companies in that situation with an activist investor in our stock. And fortunately for us, I would say that that activist investor was both well-timed and had the right perspective to bring about a relatively swift and relatively amicable resolution. And that was we agreed to continue down the path that we were that we were going down, and that was simplifying the company, streamlining the cost, but it allowed us to step on the accelerator in that process. And so what you're referring to is 
in early 2017, off the back of after the first year we'd gotten through after the regime change, we announced as a part of our settlement, if you want to call it that, with the activists, that the next phase of our uh, you know, approach to that simplification was significantly selling off those businesses whose value was not resonating in the whole company, along the lines of what I described before. Continuing down the path towards reducing costs and also improving even further the margins of our retail business, which had its beginnings in that Reliant acquisition that I spoke about earlier. Yeah, and all of this resulted in something that you called the transformation plan back in mid-2017. Could you talk about, so you mentioned high-level selling off assets whose value isn't being recognized in the NRG share price and reducing costs and improving margins at, at, with the retail business. Could you talk about the asset sale number, what you plan on doing in order to achieve cost reductions? And, and I'll just leave it there for right now. Sure. So, as a, and this, this has evolved uh, since that period time, but I won't go back through the entire history. The cornerstone of that three-pronged transformation plan that you correctly referred to was the asset sell piece. The other two component pieces being cost savings and improving the margin of the retail business. We are in the, in the kind of middle to late innings of an asset divestiture program that in total amounts to about a little more than $3 billion worth of asset sales. About half of that number is the sale of our renewables platform, which was what created those big renewable projects I referred to before, and our in our remaining stake in the renewable plants that we own today. That is, in the, you know, that we previously taken public. I referred to that before because that that IPO of that company helped highlight the differentiated value of that business, I often refer to as it was necessary but not sufficient to solve the problem. So we concluded that the best way to solve that problem was to sell it completely and turn it into cash, right? If the market price is not giving you the fair price, then if the third party asset sale market does, you can take that capital and deploy it elsewhere to the benefit of the shareholders. That I would say is the cornerstone of that asset sale program. As I said, about half of that 3 billion plus is that business. And then it's rounded out by some, you know, some other businesses that comport with the same definition, but it's, it's anchored by that part of the business. That basically puts us on a path to, well, it's $3 billion plus. That's a lot of capital yeah. for a company. I mean, to you know, put it in perspective, that's $10 a share for a company basically as recently as the end of 2015, you know, had a share price of less than $10 a share, just to put it in perspective. <laughs> So we're, we're turning, you know, apart, but certainly by no means all of our business into cash. It's about $10 a share. That gives you a lot of degrees of freedom to either return that cash back to the shareholders because it's obviously their money or to find ways to apply that cash to create more value than just $10 a share. So that, that's really the cornerstone of that program. So your target was somewhere between two and a half and $4 billion in asset sale proceeds. And, you know, you hit the midpoint and now with an equity value of call it roughly $10 billion, 30% of that is coming back in cash, which is pretty, pretty phenomenal. Could you talk about the balance sheet as well? So in a previous episode, having Mike Garland on the program to talk about investor concerns around leverage levels and, and the total amount of debt by divesting the renewables business, you're shedding a lot of debt off of the balance balance sheet, correct? Uh, that's correct. And, and, and since you mentioned, you know, Mike Earl, I mean, uh, Mike, Mike's company has, you know, an, an element of this 
challenge that that we faced that was a part of our challenge from the balance sheet standpoint. I mentioned before that the renewables business that we had, most all of our renewables assets were all under long-term contract. They were all selling their output over, in, in many cases, as much as 20 years plus over the long run. That's a pretty levelized stream of cash flow that just allows itself to be financed at the individual project level at a pretty high order of magnitude and at a pretty low cost because there's low risk means low cost to the debt. And so think of that just as a bunch of almost like mortgages, each one of which is right next to that power plant that's generating those, the renewable power plant that's generating all those cash flows. That's a great benefit, right? That allows you to, to generate a lot of equity return. The, the downside to that is that level of debt relative to the EBITDA is a high level of debt. And understandably so, because that cash flow is not fluctuating around. So it naturally lends itself to higher levels of leverage. So we really faced two challenges, one of which we probably had some degree in common with, with Mike Allen, but I, I won't certainly speak for him in that regard. And that was on the face of our balance sheet, which included all of those highly levered, albeit highly contracted, low volatility and cash flow power plants, as well as the traditional debt we had on the balance sheet to finance the traditional part of the company, when you looked at that relative to the cash flow of the overall company, it looked disproportionately high, right? Now, you know, obviously you'd understand that that was true if you unpacked that a little further, but the average investor only has so much time. And that's why I often said, on the face of the Bloomberg screen, we look like we had way too much debt. It didn't matter whether you got down below that and you could explain why that was there. Sometimes you have to recognize that perception is reality. Mm -hmm. So part of that divestiture, aside from generating the three billion plus of cash, the other benefit of it is it solves a good part of that face of the Bloomberg, problem, yeah. right? If you're selling off all the assets that have a higher degree of leverage that is impairing the optics, for lack of a better term, of the company, that takes you a long way towards the average investor understanding the capital structure better. Yeah. And that, that took us a big step in the right direction. And in addition, off of the back of two things, one, as I said, leave no doubt as to the integrity of the balance sheet. We elected to take an incremental step to even further delever by taking some of, and for example, that $3 billion worth of cash and reducing our debt. One, that reduces our overall debt, makes us look less financially and makes us be less financially risky. But of equal importance, you know, we at NRG, we have a lot of net operating losses or, or, or tax shield that we can use, which means we're not making the most of the, the interest deduction that we generate from all that debt. So. You know, the, our debt is less valuable to us as a company that doesn't currently pay taxes. So that was another motivation behind reducing our target leverage ratio, which is now only three times as a ratio of our net debt, which is our total debt minus our cash, divided by our EBITDA, which is basically just a proxy for our cash flow. So our, our debt net of our cash should represent no more than three times our annual cash flow. That's a simplified way to say Yeah. And so at the peak, debt was what, 23 billion? And the debt will be or close to 8 billion by the end of the year? Uh, it's actually lower than that. It, should be, it, will be, it will be under six by the end of this year. So if I were to just summarize at a very high level and probably butcher it, but um, it, early 2000s, there was you know a lot of supply in the market. Commodity prices were low. There were bankruptcies. There was probably concern around 
the viability of the business model. NRG comes out of bankruptcy. You're, there are, as we said, social and economic motivations that led to, call it, you know, renewable build out. Uh, you acquired more generation. You acquired some retail assets. Then capacity markets also come along, stabilize the business a little bit. But then there's all this concern around renewables, the returns for renewable growth investments that NRG was making. Everyone's concerned about. So again, going back to capacity markets, commodity prices, the economics for for renewables. You have these targets to reduce cost and to improve the balance sheet. Could you talk a little bit about the one missing piece, which is stable business model? So in terms of cash flows, revenues, how is the business different today versus just call it, you know, early 2000s, mid 2000s? You know, I, I would say aside from the simplicity and the enhanced integrity of the balance sheet, which we just talked about, focusing on the business model itself. I think that the, the biggest difference is, A, I think from a power generation part of the business, we are in the right markets that we would like to be in going forward. And that's primarily, obviously, Texas or the ERCOT market. Reason for that is... If you'd like to continue listening to this interview, you'll need to become a member. To become a member, Visit the website at thestockpodcast.com. Members have access to all full-length episodes. So go to the website, thestockpodcast.com, and click membership at the top. And with that, take care and good luck with your portfolio.